0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Doctors of Running virtual roundtable where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. Today is episode number 86. The numbers are getting up there. It's been a lot of fun continuing to grow this podcast both in... Uh, just the volume of the content that we're able to produce as well as the types of people that we're able to bring in. And today is one of those special episodes where we have a an exciting guest that we've been looking forward to talk to. I know that we individually are going to have a lot to learn from him and hearing his perspective on how he approaches research. And so I'm going to introduce him to the roundtable right now. Uh, but it, before I do that, I will say we have Matt Klein, David Salas, and myself. Uh, the three of us are here. And then our special guest is Matt Trudeau, To introduce him a little bit, he's going to go in more, but uh, Matt is originally from Montreal, Canada. His background is in mechanical engineering. He completed his bachelor's degree at Dalhousie University and his master's degree at the University of Sherbrooke, where he studied the role of fascia and polyarticular biomechanics. Maybe we'll have to learn what that actually means in a little bit and he then completed a doctoral degree in ergonomics and human factors at harvard university and then he finally went on to do a postdoc with benno nig probably heard that name before if you have been listening to us so he he studied with benno uh, at the university of calgary and he now leads the brooks future concepts team at brooks where he has been for the last seven years he's also the industry representative on the board of footwear biomechanics group so we are so glad matt thank you so much for joining us on the podcast
2: yeah, I'm really glad to be here. And thank you so much for inviting me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure.
0: Yeah, this is going to be, I think, a lot of fun. Before we go into our subjective for the week, I also want to ask all of you a favor. Our viewership has gone way up over the last two months. And something that would really help us out if you take one minute, even if it's right now, while I talk about the subjective to leave a review of this podcast, uh, just talk a little bit about what you gain out of it or what you don't, things we can improve on. Uh, But that does help our reach in helping other people learn about what we're doing. And then it allows us to interview more cool people like Matt. So um, thanks for taking a minute to do that if you are willing. So our subjective for the week, uh, we want to just ask a question about how you choose the right shoes for you. So how long do you Usually take to know if a shoe is going to work for you? Is it one run? Is it right when you put it on your foot? Or does it take you usually 20 miles, 50 miles, 100 miles, or the whole life of the shoe? How do you personally decide how a shoe works for you and if a shoe is comfortable? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So you can, especially when this is posted on YouTube, is that's usually the easiest way. Uh, you can look, uh, comment below and we'd love to hear how you choose if a shoe is comfortable and how long that process takes. So I'm going to kick it over to Matt Klein um, to do our interview with Matt, and here we go. All right, so Matt, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um,
1: My biggest curiosity coming in as a PhD candidate is kind of looking at your your brief – we talked about where you've done your educational stuff, but can you talk us through a little bit about your your journey and kind of going from, you know, obviously the academic part with bachelor's, master's and doctoral degree to how you ended up going to do postdoc with Ben O'Nigg and then what made you choose going into the footwear world, right? In terms of research, rather than a lot of PhDs will typically look at more of sometimes an academic position as an independent researcher, but that's actually seems like it's becoming less popular actually. So what made you choose this route uh, and how did you get there?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy to chat about that. So, so yeah, it, uh, I did my uh, doctoral degree at Harvard School of Public Health and it was in a completely different topic, uh, do- different field. So I was looking at, uh, at mobile devices like cell phones and, uh, and tablet devices. And, uh, and I was looking at how people interact with those devices using their, their fingers and thumbs. And I was uh, seeing how we could redesign those, um, those devices to, uh, to promote performance uh, for your thumb and, uh, and reduce awkward postures. And so I, I, yeah, it was, it was cool. I, I mean, but it was completely different. And actually, you know, the way that you study that kind of stuff is the exact same way that you study running. So you use motion capture systems, you know, muscle activity sensors, you know, EMG, um, and force plates, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and then you could shift that whole set of gear into uh, running and studying shoes and, uh, and, and, it translates. So I actually used, developed a whole coding script to a, a whole kinematic model, um, in MATLAB, uh, in my doctoral degree. And, I, and that's the one that we use here at Brooks now to do our, our analysis when we, when we test our shoes. I just kind of switched it up, obviously, to instead of the upper body and the thumb. Now, I, now we're looking at the, uh, you know, the foot and the leg. Uh, but anyway, after my doctoral degree, um, I, I always had, you know, a passion for sports and, uh, I played, I played ultimate frisbee and hockey, uh, growing up and I, and I ran to train. And so I wanted, I was interested in, in the lower extremity and running and, um, and Ben O'Nig had an opening for a postdoc and, one really good thing about um about working for Beno and, and his group, uh, Biomechanic, is that they work with a lot of industries. Uh for example, while I was there, I worked with Mizuno, I worked with uh with Adidas, and um and so I didn't know what I wanted to do, whether I, I went into academia or industry. So that seemed like the perfect place. The other thing is that they they're really good at um uh, analysis. So I wanted to learn some machine learning algorithms and, and how to, uh, how to do that type of, of data analysis. And so there that group is focused on that. So um, I spent two years, you know, working with, uh, with Benno. And then, um, and then I was, the, the way that I got into to Brooks is kind of a funny story. Um, I was a chair on a, a session at the World Congress of Biomechanics. And then, uh, one of our speakers, uh, canceled. They couldn't, they couldn't speak anymore at, at the conference in the, in the footwear, uh, focus session. And, um, I told Tony Arndt, who was the co-chair, I was like, I'll, I'll present. And, and the conference was in like four days, I think, uh, cause I, I just had a poster, but I was like, I'll, I'll, it seems like a great opportunity. So I'll just present my, I'll make, turn my poster into a podium presentation. And, um, and that's what I did. And, um, and so, um, si- by the way, Simon Bartold is the one who canceled his presentation. So I, I know no a lot way. of, a lot of you guys probably know him. And so I always, yeah. I always thank him. I'm like, oh, no, thanks funny. for not coming to the conference. Cause you opened the door for me <laughs> and, uh, I presented and it went really well. And then, and then the director of the, um, of uh, the lab of the Brooks lab was in the audience and we had a chat afterwards and went for a beer and stuff. And then they had a an opening for a research scientist and so i started at brooks seven years ago um yeah and so i i wasn't sure if i wanted academics or or industry but in the end um there was a great opportunity in industry and and you know what like there, there are a lot of pros to both uh and for me what i like about industry is um i like to have a tangible impact on on products and and you know If I go running on the Burke Gilman Trail here, here in Seattle and I see someone who's wearing a shoe that I, I actually worked on, like that's really gratifying. I I really like, like that. And, uh, I like to hold, you know, the, the product of, of our work, you know, uh, of our teamwork in my hand. And I I think there's something cool about that. I also like the fast paced environment of, of industry. Um, oftentimes in industry, you have to decide on how to move forward, uh, using, um, you know you don't have the luxury of having you know tested 300 subjects um you know or uh or or having all the data at your fingertips you kind of have to move and and hope for the and and hope for the for the best and and then test it and see if if it works uh with runners and i kind of like that fast pace um approach to to creating to creating things um, and I, and I like presenting to people who, uh, who don't have a scientific background. I, I really like to, uh, relate to, let's say a designer or a developer and, uh, and, and have them kind of understand a scientific concept. Um, and I have the opportunity to do that here. Um, and I'm, I'm entirely focused on, on research at, at Brooks. I mean, you know, there's a lot of product, uh, project management, people management and stuff like that, of course, but, you know, I don't have to write grants. Or, you know, I do some teaching uh, as part of our Brooks Academy program that we have here for, with employees. But, you know, it's not, it's not as much focused as teaching as, as it would be in an academic job, for instance. Um, and, you know, we write papers, but it's not, uh, you know, a, a must. It's not like publish or perish, you know, in, in, um, in, in, um, industry. And the and the last thing is uh, if I did go to academics one day, which you know who knows I, I might, I wanted to know how things worked in in industry first, so that I could um, teach that uh, to my students, and uh, and then also develop the network so that uh, my students, if they wanted to pursue um, an industry role down the road, then I could point them in the right direction and uh, and have a, a whole network. So, I think
0: you have a couple really good examples for people who are. Um in different boats. So we have a lot of people who are following who who may be thinking about further education and what direction to go. And I think something that you show is that just because you're going in a, to get your PhD in some specific thing or your dissertation is on a certain topic, that doesn't pigeonhole you into your career. Because from what I understand about the PhD process is it's a process of learning how to a- ask questions and the methods in which to seek ideas and answers to those questions. And obviously you went from, you know, Technology with your hands down to running with your feet, and you're able to make that transition. And so, don't feel like it's pigeonholing you. I feel like Matt's been learning that as well in terms of when and how to ask questions as he's gone through his PhD process as well. Um, so, I think that, I think that's a pretty cool example of when you can switch that. I think the other thing that landed for me was I'm just I'm about to start an educational doctorate program on my way to transitioning hopefully to academia. It's also has been really nice that I've been in practice for over five years. And so and I'll, I'll, you know, through the whole process of going through school, I'm still going to be in the clinic and working with patients. And I think for me to be helpful to students who are trying to become physical therapists, to have X number of years under my belt of actually knowing what it's like to be in a clinic, you can be much more translatable in the way that you educate. So I think you hit on so many great points there. So fascinating.
3: Yeah. I also just love how organic that story is like coming from that educational background, being someone that likes ergonomics and biomechanics, regardless of the joint, because that was something I was looking into potentially outside of PT when I was making my decisions. And uh, it's just interesting, you know, like, cause it's still universal to the rest of the body. And I just love that you took that system you created and then shifted it and applied it and, and they're still using it. So I think that's awesome. Like just that natural progression and one thing kind of leads to the next and you just kind of keep building that network.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: I'm also, I'm also super impressed of what you created in MATLAB uh, as I am in, at a s- stage right now where my mentors are like, you should use visual 3d for your biomechanics analysis. And I was looking at MATLAB and I was like, Oh my goodness. So I have a lot of respect for you for creating
2: that and coding. That's, that's a lot of work. Oh, yeah. But, you know, everybody has started by sucking at MATLAB. I mean, but it, eventually okay. Fair. <laughs> that makes me feel better. I mean, eventually you get better. Right. And you uh, if right. you have a goal, you know, and you keep working at it and uh, you, you get better. And it's it's just I, it's a fun tool. You know, I, I used to hate it. And then as you get better, you you start to love it because you see you can do so much stuff. uh by, co- right.
0: by coding there's, with data, yeah. Yeah, to be Just so to be clear, freedom. MATLAB is yeah. a method in which to analyze biomechanical data. It's a soft. Or- it's
2: a, just a software you use. Uh, a lot of biomechanists use MATLAB to analyze um, biome. Uh, you know biomechanics data. You could also use Python, or you know, the, you know Matt mentioned Visual 3D. There, there's many great tools out there.
1: Now, now, Matt, you mentioned some really interesting things that piqued my interest. So, one of the things that I'm going through right now with setting up my own research is talking about subjects, right? A lot of times in academia with having statisticians there or the pressure of publisher parish, there's an expectation of getting a certain number of subjects. And we know, for those who don't know, in the biomechanics literature, oftentimes you don't get a ton of subjects. You know, it's very common to have 18, 20 people when other areas of research might say, Oh, you might need one, two hundred, which is very difficult to get with the number of things you're doing when you look at somebody's biomechanics or their, their EMG, their muscle activation, or looking at force plate. So that kind of brings me to the next question of asking what kind of what are the what are those research methods look like at Brooks and what makes it what, what makes Blue Lion Labs unique? And that might be
2: too vague. So the way that we, um, you know, figure out how many subjects we need for a study, you know, there's so many studies that we do. First off, like I, I lead our future concepts team. Uh, and then that's like seven, seven people internally and I manage our academic collaborators. And this is just a bit of context, you know, and then we also have our product assessment team that my team works, works with also, but they're more focused on testing our inline uh, products that you, you see in the store or on brooksrunning.com, for instance and they they have a biomechanics team and then a, a wear test team also who send shoes out to testers across the the US and gather survey feedback um and so on but uh, but so my team we do a little more exploratory research uh, uh and uh, and so our studies vary and um and so uh, what our goal is will will dictate, you know, how many people we need. You know, if we're looking for a large effect size, then we don't need a, as many people. But we did a study, for instance, um, with uh, over a thousand people, and and that was we were, we were interested in, in watch data and how people run. For and we gathered second by second data from a thousand of our wear testers, so that we could understand things like when do people fatigue, you know, and how do people change the way that they run. When they're when they're uh, you know at the end uh, parts of a race, um, and so it really depends. But um, the way that we test, one thing that makes uh, our lab, which is called our lab, is called the Run Research uh, Team and Lab, Run Research Lab, um, and that the Run Research Lab is both my team, the Future Concepts team, and the Product Assessment team. Um, one thing that makes us really unique is is that we have a standard protocol by which we test all of our shoes. And uh, I don't think that, that any other brand could say that, that they test every single shoe um, that, that they put into production. Um, and the way that we do that is, is through our run signature protocol in the lab. Um, and we've published it in uh, Footwear Science. And, and so uh, you can go and, and find it and see exactly how we test every single one of our shoes and for that, we usually recruit 12 people, 12 runners. Um, and sometimes, you know, uh, we uh, we do a study and we find, oh, like, you know, this shoe that was supposed to be a support shoe is not supportive at all, c- according to these 12 people. And so in that case, you know, we, uh, we have to improve it. <laughs> and so we, uh, you know, 12 people we find has been useful to give us a gauge of how the shoe is doing. Um and and we definitely focus on functionality of, of our shoes, which is also something I think that is special from from Brooks, um, that if the shoe isn't performing well biomechanically, um, then that that holds a lot of, uh, you know, it, it's a big factor in determining if we're going to continue on with this same tooling, you know, midsole or upper. Uh, we might have to go back and, um, in, in round two, you know, tweak a, a few things and then test it again until, until it's right, until it's actually supportive, both biomechanically and perceptually. Um, so hopefully yeah, when you, yeah. when
0: you say, when you say performing well biomechanically, what are some of those kind of tick points that, that need to be met? What are some of those standards?
2: Yeah. So it, that is, uh, I, I'm going to say it and then I could explain. So it's, it's a lower deviation, lower run signature deviation, uh, at, at the knee and at the, at the foot. And so our, our standardized method in, involved of testing involves the run signature protocol, which is a, a method by which we, we quantify someone's habitual motion path. Um, and the habitual motion path is the path of least resistance of, of, uh, your joints and everybody has a, a unique, a uh, habitual motion path that's uh, based on your anatomy. So each one of our, you know, we all have different morphologies, you know, in a, in our bones, and and we also have different um, mechanical properties in our muscles and our tendons. And what that means is that if you're if 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 you take your elbow, you know, and, and you move it like this, the way that if you you were to quantify, you know, the kinematics of that movement, I, I'm going to be different than Matt and, and then Nathan and, and David, you know, so. Um, so we, we, um, we believe, you know, that if you're able to run, uh, in your habitual motion path, then in your path of least resistance, then that is, um, is beneficial to a runner in terms of reducing a risk, risk of injury and, uh, and beneficial in terms of performance. And, uh, and we've published, you know, not only the protocol, but also, uh, a study that, that validated the run signature, uh, protocol through, um, in, in an MRI an MRI study that we did, where we had runners, this was a study that was done in Cologne, and uh, Stefan Willwalker and Peter Brugemann um, were the leads on that one. But we had people run for seventy five minutes on a treadmill, and every fifteen minutes they hopped into the MRI machine, and we measured their um, uh, their uh, the, you know their, 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 we looked at their knee, and uh, and we saw whether their um, cartilage was compressed or not. And uh, if their cartilage was more compressed in in one area of the knee, then that meant that there was an increased loading in in that area. And and what we found was that uh, the shoe that minimized, we tested three shoes, so people ran that 75 minute three times. And then uh, we found that the shoe that reduces your deviation from your habitual motion path also reduced the the loading on, um, on, on the knee. And uh, and it was the shoe that reduced the person's deviation was different from one person to the next actually. And so that was kind of support for the method that we use in, a, in our lab, which involves having the, the runner do a squat and, and you know the, the squat is kind of the approximation of your habitual motion path because they're very low uh, magnitudes of loading on your knee when you're when you're squatting. Um, and then we compare, it's bilateral squat, yeah, exactly. It's more of a knee bend. It's not you don't squat like very deep. And then we we have a and then we we compare the way that you run So the kinematics or you know the movement of your knee when you run to that squat, and that's how we could calculate a a, a deviation. Uh, you know, and and so we have uh, we look at the knee because the knee is the most injured site in, in runners. Uh, but we also are interested in, in the foot, obviously, and we we look at other things too, not just you know the run signature metrics. You know, we look at the aversion uh, rate and the loading rate. All the, you know, they're running on a on a force you know instrumented treadmill, so we measure lots of metrics, and uh, and so that gives us a lot of power to to assess how a, how a shoe is doing for a runner.
3: I I do have one quick question, so. Like from the consumer standpoint, not having access to all this great kinematic data to see their own metrics and their own calcaneal version or their own preferred movement pathway, what are some things that they can look for within the product to to validate how they're feeling and what may guide them towards choosing a certain piece of footwear?
2: Yeah, that that's a great question, and um, one thing. Uh, that, that we wanted to do was to, to develop a, a survey that would, you know, guide runners in the right direction in terms of product. And so we, we actually have de- developed a survey that is, um, that is validated uh, with our biomechanical data. So, so people who went through the lab, um, you know, also answered ser- many, many questions, and we've reduced the number of questions uh, to, to something that's just, you know, simple and more intuitive uh, to, to answer. But anyway, if you go through the our shoe finder survey on brooksrunning.com and you uh, get the recommendation of a support shoe, you know, there's a good chance that if you were to go through our our lab uh, testing um, protocol that you would be identified as a as a high deviator who who might benefit from a support shoe. So there's that, but there's also things like um, you know, if you've had previous injuries, uh, then you know, you might be better off in a, in a shoe that's a little more supportive, for example. And um, and so, yeah, there's many ways that that and you know, seeing guy, people like you, you know, uh, physiotherapists and podiatrists are uh, are extremely important in in guiding someone to the right shoe, especially if they're uh, if they're really worried about about getting injured or if they've had previous injuries in the past. Because you guys are the experts, also.
0: And that, the first thing you talked about where people can find that on Brooks' website. Yeah, right? yeah. I think, it's, I've, gone, it's our shoe I think I've gone through it before. It's the shoe finder, right? Yes. And it kind of has you do, like, it has you do that squat that you're talking about. Right. It's, it's more of a sim- like looking
2: simple way of assessing uh, someone without the the need for, you know, the $300,000 emotion capture system and all, <laughs> all the 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 different bells and whistles you know
1: the the thousands and thousands of hours it takes to actually learn how to utilize that at least semi-competently as i am learning right now so but that's very cool that it's it's you've validated the survey and that it brings a lot more oomph to knowing that yeah i've got research back on this but a quick question or comment more one of the the things that we talk about extensively that for and you know this especially working for brooks and is trying to change language so for the longest time the the footwear industry used the term pronation and it kind of became this catch-all term almost meaning bad uh, dare I say whereas I'm hearing you use a term and so we've tried to go hey this is actually you know this is a natural motion right to what degree we're trying to figure out what's considered over pronation versus pronation like that's nobody it's been kind of hard to quantify that we're there versus you're using the term deviation and i'm curious for our listeners if you could expand on that because i think that's a much better way of describing what's kind of going on in terms of why somebody might need a little bit more support and stability versus somebody who might not could you dive in? you did a little bit but i'd be curious for you to expand on that just a little bit more
2: yeah well i you know it, it's that Pronation isn't a, a bad thing, right? And I think, you know, it's always been associated to uh to something bad and and because you know people use the term over pronation, you know, and and I've always wondered like over what? You know, because right. <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> because over there are people who have over pronation and it is a clinical issue that you know they have they should see a podiatrist and and there is, you know, have a solution footwear for their needs and, and orthotics and whatnot. But almost everybody has some degree of pronation, and and I think that's something that uh, that you, you have to accept, and and that it's a, it's a way that your body has to kind of dampen the, the forces that you you apply to the ground when you're running. It's through pronation and you know flexing your knee and, and, and whatnot. And uh, and I think there's a there's a great paper in 2014, a Nielsen paper that showed how pronation is actually protective in, in runners. Right. And so I,
1: I was just about to reference that study where people that – for those listeners who don't know, this is a great study where those who do not pronate – so if you tend to have a more stiff and rigid foot when you land, it actually increases your risk for injuries like bone stress, stress fracture, those kind of injuries. Whereas, again, if you do pronate, that tends to be protective because you're shock-absorbing in a more appropriate way, but obviously there's a continuum to maybe too much, which we haven't quite defined yet, to too little – as Matt is referring to,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's a, that was that's a myth that hasn't quite yet. It's been debunked, but people haven't realized it quite yet. It's a, it's kind of a slow process. Yeah, right.
1: I I think Brooks has done a really good job. Yeah, maybe Brooks has done a really good job of not propagating that. I think there's still a variety of people, and I I dare say maybe a couple companies out there that that still might be using some of that verbiage, probably unintentionally, like for the best. Best intentions, but maybe you know we gotta we gotta catch up a little bit. So on on that topic, so you so you're using, you're using the term deviation instead.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like high high and low deviators, and uh, and you know whether you need support or or um, or or a neutral shoe, but support is also a complicated term, <laughs> and I, I'm, I right. think that's where you're you're getting at, right?
1: Right, and so that that go- kind of takes us to the next topic about guide rails, which was i think what are the the initial uh, the initial use of guide rails was in the brooks transcend correct many many years ago exactly yeah and then then it evolved and then the world the foot world was shocked when the long-standing brooks adrenaline suddenly shifted from a medial post to guide rails and i remember the shock and people some people getting upset And I was like, what is going to happen with this? And actually, for a lot of people, this turned out great. And one of the things that that I talk about frequently, we talk about, is there's actually guide rails on both sides of the foot. So on that topic, would you mind jumping into that a little bit and then talk and explain how does Brooks, or how do you define stability or stability in footwear?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm happy to chat about that a little. Um, And, you know, the way that we define Support. I, I guess we could use stability and support intercha- interchangeably in this case. Um, although, th- I, yeah, Should someone we? could argument that could argue that they're a little different. Um, you know, we use we use support, and the way that we define it is is, um, is uh, a reduction in you know reducing your run signature deviation. Okay, but the way that it's been defined, kind of in the the old school way, um, is. Is from podiatrists who who say you know that a, a stiffer shoe and bending you know is uh, is more beneficial for your uh, your plantar fascia you know if you've had plantar fasciitis for instance and then a post you know reduces your uh, the degree of, of pronation which um, if you've had certain types of injuries could be could be beneficial you know if if that if that pronation is actually over pronation you know um, and then and then more recently. You know, the, the de- uh, definition of, of stability and, uh, and support it, is actually changing a little bit. And people more and more associate support as, as being protected and, and cushioned. And so it's, a, it's completely different. So you've got some people who, who associate support as being as, as a stiff platform uh, under their foot because they feel like, you know, they know where the ground is, you know, it's responsive. But then you have the people who, who associate support as being cushioned and, uh, and, you know, kind of like a, a pillow for their foot, right? So I think, so the definition will vary from one person to the next. And that's, that's really important to realize because you, as a footwear brand, you know, you need to have many different, uh, options and a variety of, of, of different shoes that have different properties to, um, so that, so that hopefully all runners could find something that they find supportive. Um, so the guide rails 2.0 that you're referring to is the guide rail that has has a post. And so it's it's got a stiffer piece of, of foam on the medial uh, side of the foot, but then it also has a lateral uh, kind of bumper, okay? And, uh, and the development of, of that originated uh with run signature that that philosophy that everybody is unique and you have to kind of embrace their their uniqueness and that most injuries happen at the knee so we should focus on the knee as opposed to uh to the to the foot okay so we we were like okay most injuries happen at, at the knee how do we how do we affect the knee with the shoe it's it's really hard and, and one thing from our, our literature review and, and all the studies that we did with our academic collaborators at the time, which was 10 years ago, and that was Joe Hamill and, and Peter Bruggemann, who are two of the, you know, they're, they're two of the best in, in, uh, in the business, and, and they're kind of the godfathers of, biomechan- of running biomechanics, right, with Benno. Um, but what we found w- was that if there's a coupling between the foot and, uh, and the knee, and so, if, if your calcaneus bone rotates inwards when you're running, which happens in, in almost everybody, uh, that is coupled with a rotation of your tibia inwards when, when you're running. So there is actually a way that you could you could guide the knee in someone someone who might have knee injuries. Um, if there's too much you know deviation of that tibia uh, rotating when they're running, you could potentially you know change that. Uh, and reduce that amount of deviation by reducing the amount of deviation in the calcaneus or the the heel bone, right? Because of that coupling. And so we wanted to find out first are, is there actually that calcaneal, um, rotation happening inside the shoe? So we put holes in the shoe and we called it the holy shoe study. And, uh,
1: (laughs) and I just read, I just read that study this morning. I was like, that is brilliant because there's there's some previous literature before what you all did that looked at like, Hey, you know, predicting calcaneal motion based on the external shoe isn't always accurate. Right, so right. that's very cool that you went ah, we'll make holes and we'll stick the, the markers directly on the foot and bypass that. That
0: was really the holy shoe study. I like that. I did not know that. Yeah. And just to make sure, is this the one, was it ended up, did it end up being titled effects of midsole density distribution on kinematics and kinetics? Is that the, is that the study or is that a different one? That's a different one. That's a that's different, a different one. one. Cause that's, that one you you put posts and firmer densities in different yeah. areas of the shoe, That's a one. so I didn't know if that was it was that was connected or not. But cool. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. I don't want
2: to. Yeah, and and so uh, so we actually found you know at the end of the study we found that that the calcaneus actually does you know rotate inwards and is coupled with the tibia and uh, and in, in most high deviators um, if you have uh, you know this solution, which we came up with, which is, you know, the, the post, the medial post and the, and the lateral uh, heel bumper there, you, that would seemed to be, that it was effective at reducing that um, tibial internal rotation deviation, especially in people who were who strong couplers. Some people are weak couplers, like they, they're su- super flexible at the, at the ankle. And so n- they could run in any shoe and it doesn't affect their knee. It seems, you know, there's high responders and low responders right which is kind of a hot topic these days um, in in this field but uh but anyway in in most high deviators the the guide rails 2.0 uh, solution um, worked and uh, you know at first the the guide rails 2.0 um was it, it was kind of a frankenstein type of solution like it, it was really ugly and it was just like huge pieces of, of dense foam, you know, and it looked like, uh, and we had like, you know, four different options, and they all were a little bit different. And like, we had a bumper in the forefoot at one point, because you have, um you have as the calcaneus rotates inwards, there's a coupling with the forefoot where the forefoot rotates outwards. So if you have a piece of, you know, a bumper at the forefoot, can you do an even better job at reducing deviation? So anyway, we had multiple different And that was really uncomfortable, by the way, having something like a bumper on your forefoot. It uh, it was, you know, that's just a prototype that that didn't work in terms of comfort. Um, And uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, we uh, we came up, you know, we gave that to the designers, and we have great designers here at Brooks who who took this Frankenstein shoe and uh, and made it look look really good and and keep keeping the functionality intact. And so so now we you know we have guidelines for our designers to where the, the guide rail has to be and the height and the location. And so so yeah. That's kind of the story so, behind so I, guide rails uh
1: 2.0. That's really cool. I and I, you know, I I I have to admit that I have been mistakenly calling the guide rail system a not a non-traditional stability method, saying that there's no post. But that medial one is technically a post. So I've been saying that wrong.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, the thing, that's something that people don't realize. And I, you know, I don't blame you because I think, you know, if you didn't uh, get it, it just means we're not doing a, a good enough job at, uh, at communicating that, that it's actually, uh, it does have a traditional post. And uh, in addition, it has other support features. And one thing that's super important to realize too, is that the, The guide rails, uh, you know, support system, uh, is, uh, it's just one piece of technology, right? And, but, but the fact is that the shoe is a, is a system. And so you can't, uh, you, you have to account for many different things in the, in how the shoe supports you. And that includes the medial sidewall, the lateral sidewall, you know, the heel bevel, the, uh, you know, the, the toe spring. The upper is important at, at supporting uh, the runner, both in terms in biomechanically and in terms of perception too. Um, and there's there's others, right? Uh, you know, the flexibility of the shoe. And so for each one of our shoe models, you know, we'll tweak the way that that we integrate that guide rails 2.0 support technology to accommodate for for the whole system, which is the shoe. And and you know, that varies for a launch. Compared to a uh, glycerin, for example, that have different stack heights and different and you know different foams. Yeah.
0: One question that popped into my head too. Um, it's a, it's a different category of design, but a lot of your traditional shoes, like the I don't know why traditional might not be the right word, but like your Brooks Ghost and and some like that have a twelve millimeter drop. Um, and so that's kind of been carried for a long time. Do you guys have a a reason why you stick to the 12 millimeter We're we, on on our team, we don't have a good, bad drop philosophy. We have a, you know, there's there's a good thing. Yeah. So what's kind of the thought on, on y'all's end in terms of how you choose drop ratio?
2: Well, I, I think in the example that you gave there with the Ghost, I think it's because people love the Ghost. I mean, it's one of the, <laughs> it's one of the right. best-selling <laughs> running shoes in the world. So uh, we found that, that the drop is, is one factor in, in that you know, feeling that people have that they like it. And people um, tend to... to uh, that drop leads to a, a smooth transition from, from heel to toe, I, I think. Things change when you go below uh, an eight millimeter drop in most shoes. Of course, that depends on the stack height. It depends on the foam that you're using and, and many things. But below an eight millimeter drop, that's where you start seeing uh, differences uh, biomechanically. And that it, it's especially in the running um, style or running pattern where people start four foot, you know, or midfoot or four foot striking a little bit more in low, low drop shoes. And low drop shoes that have uh, a really compliant foam, actually, there's a, it becomes a negative drop because like, you know, if you're heel striking on something that's super compliant, that has a four millimeter drop, like you're kind of, your toes are pointing up,
0: you
2: know? And so I, I, I don't see how that could be, that could be good, you know, but some people it works for them. And so it really depends on the individual, as you guys said. Uh, but for the ghost, you know, uh, we we've found that 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 drop is uh, is ideal for for people because they they love it and we've tested multiple different uh, versions
0: and we talk about that all the time where static measurements of of drop really don't mean a whole lot you know you have to take into the whole shoe into account especially some of that compliance factor of the foam there was a prototype that I won't say what it was but that I was testing that had. Uh, a lower drop in general, but had such a compliant heel because there's a lot of decoupling happening, and there were like little pods. And I ended up having a pretty bad calf strain from a mile and a half of running in it because I was running remarkably uphill, basically, yeah, because yeah, yeah. because because of that drop going to a negative drop well, ratio. So
2: so it was a it was a low drop shoe. You're saying right? And so it could have been yep. it could have been that it could have been, but it could have also high been- stack too. Okay. Well, it could have also been that, that maybe you were, you were landing more on your midfoot, forefoot, and that's putting more strain on your Achilles tendon, you know, and it's shifting the load from your knee to your, to your ankle. And so when a lot of, when people start running in a low drop shoe, often that's what happens. And they, they realize their Achilles tendon hurts. And, and it's just because they're changing, suddenly changing the way that they're, uh, that they're landing and put, and applying forces to their body. Yeah.
1: Matt we're just going to take all the sound bites that you just like said because I've been repeating those for years and I just now I feel totally validated so thank you very
2: much. Oh cool. I'm glad
1: we're <laughs> like, in yes, line. Yes, i not nuts. <laughs> I'm, glad like, we're I'm not
0: nuts. This is great. Yeah. It's yeah. it's helpful to you know we 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 try to promote certain messages from what we learn from studies like what you work on, you know, and uh it's it is helpful to hear people continue to promote the same message that we're we're trying to trying to give to people. So it's pretty awesome. I'm glad.
1: And that it's, it's, it's important for our listeners just to emphasize what Matt is talking about with drop. We're not saying one drop is better than the other overall. It's again, as he's talked about, it's very specific to the individual. Some people, may do better in that kind of situation where they have a low drop shoe with the softer foam and they are landing on the heel like i talked about in a recent sub two and it goes to either a zero or potentially even a negative drop a certain per- person might like that but for those of us as clinicians when we're looking at, sho- at shoes as tools and going okay this person has a, had a calf strain This how can we you know off potentially offload the ankle right so a higher drop is typically going to shift the load upwards as opposed to downwards in the ankle Where can we find that in Brooks and one or two other companies are one of the rare ones that are keeping that high drop. And it's not necessarily a bad or good thing. I would argue it's a good thing because the more variety we have in footwear in the industry, the more options people are going to have. Because as you said, people are inherently different and how they respond is going to be different and making sure they have options and guiding them to the right footwear is is the key, which is really cool to have echoed in here. One other thing
0: too. Matt, that you, you, when you first define define stability, and you even kind of said maybe support is maybe a better word. They also might mean different things. We, you know, in every single review that we do, we have a section where we talk about what we coin right now, stability, and maybe stability isn't the right word that we should be using there because of what people associate that word with. And it's it's just it's always a good a process for us to think about what language we're using, what do people associate with that word. Should we have a little definition tied in there with, you know, what are we talking about when we say support or stability, this is what we mean. It it is helpful to think about that too and what our what our language is, because sometimes it really does matter. Because
1: it sounded like Matt, you were suggesting more because the the way typically I, I can speak for myself personally is when somebody says Oh, this shoe is supportive. My first question is going to be, what do you mean by that? You know, are you talking about the cushioning? Are you talking about the stability? Right. And so I'll look at that as an opportunity to educate them. But I think when I heard you speak, it was let's actually meet them, how they're what meet them with their language and make sure that they're finding what they need, or what they think they need. Um, which is interesting, which again, goes to Nathan going, maybe we do need to define this better before we read those reviews. The
2: way that we quantify it in in our lab is is through that deviation from your habitual motion path. Right. But there's also, you have to account for the person's perceptions and the way that they define it. You know, the, the runner who's walking into the store and oftentimes they'll, they'll be prescribed a shoe by their podiatrist, for instance, you know, and, and it's, so it's, they're the podiatrist's definition that matters, uh, and, and that's important because it relates to the, you know, the person went to the their podiatrist with a problem. And so you need to support them the right way, you know, to, uh, to reduce the, the risk of injury or to, um, to help them rehab or something. But, but yeah, you have to, people have all different ways that they perceive support. And it's really fascinating. You got you've
1: had several great studies on that there's a study we read that talked about like perception versus can you can you relate biomechanical stuff to subjective uh responses and there's been some several studies on that it's very interesting to see how people react and what they define as relatable and important yeah you
2: have to account for both for sure
3: yeah i was just gonna say basically the same thing you guys said uh just interesting seeing that psychological component with stability perceived stability. And what is needed for them. Because I do know some people that are still hyper fixated on that. That I don't want to say archaic model. But um, the model of like this has to be a very rigid platform with no bend. And even if there's even the ever so slightest amount of four foot flexibility. Throw it in the trash. It's you know or whatever. Torsional, rigidity, anything. Like it has to be like a brick. You know like and then stack it up. Lock it out. Pronation's the enemy. Like there's that. Uh, the, I don't know, those ideas are still out there. And I think it's still pretty commonplace for people to be hearing that on a relatively regular basis. And I think it's good to just see things getting shaken up a little bit and, and answering some of those bigger why questions, you know, and like when someone does say like, yeah, I really like this shoe. And I'm like, okay, yeah, tell me why? Like, just to get that subjective feedback, learn why, what are they looking for? Um, Cause that can also help guide things going forward, whether it's from a uh, industrial company standpoint, or even just from a therapist standpoint, you know, like, okay, well this is working for someone else in this category, they move this way. You can kind of reshape some of those, Yeah, I don't know, ideas. It's, it's a little
2: daunting though, for the runner, you know, because it, it could get complicated quick. Like someone, rest- someone listening to this might be like, so, so what shoe do I need? Like what, what kind of support do I need? <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but but that's why I think tools like you know the, the Brooks Shoe Finder that I that I was telling you about and uh, and Brooks educating our our retail you know partners and having gurus out of the in the field you know educating uh, people and, and our and our retailers how our shoes work and how they have different levels of support just all to make it easier for the runner to find the right shoe for them. Uh, because there's also, when you think about supporting the runner, it's also through uh, the experience they want to have, you know, uh, through, through running. Like different compounds w- will offer different experiences. Some are more resilient. Some are, are more compliant. You know, someone might want more cushion. Someone w- might want to feel fast, you know, and so, um, that shoe finder also uh, takes into account, you know, what, uh, what experience, uh, the, the, person wants. And that's important in, uh, in their shoe selection process.
0: Something else we talk about, um, from time to time as well as comfort filter, how much do you see a convergence or divergence between preferred movement path, comfort filter, how much do they work together? How can people potentially use that as a way to choose shoes? What are your thoughts there?
2: Yeah, I think that they're both important. And, and Benno came up with, uh, with that paper and, um, I think it was like 2011, or no, it was a little after that, like 2015. 2015. Fifteen. Yeah. Okay, right. I had just yeah, started 15. started at Brooks, and I was I was done my postdoc at Calgary, and and I reached out to Beno, and I was like, "What do you mean comfort? Comfort is the only thing that matters. Like biomechanics don't matter." And he was like, "No, no, no, no. Actually, like no, biomechanics matter a lot, <laughs> and, and comfort is important, but it's uh, it's just a crutch until we find a method." To, um, to figure out what shoe works biomechanically for a given runner. And he said that, that runs Brooks and run signature was definitely in the right, going in the right direction, the right path. And so I, that I was pretty optimistic when I heard Benno say that, um, because I knew that we were onto something. And, uh, and so I think, yeah, comfort is, is super important, of course. And comfort, um, relates to many things, you know, like including the first, you know, first try on, you know, it's, uh, if there's any chafing on your foot and, you know, if there's any pressure points and stuff like that, but then the way that the, the shoe works with, with your body in a more, in a dynamic way, the way that I, I explained earlier through like the, the run signature deviation, you know, that's also important. And, and oftentimes you, you can't perceive that, um, when you put your foot into a shoe the first time, so, so I think both are really important to,
0: to consider. Cool. And we, the way I've thought about it from time to time, too, is I was wondering if Benno was thinking, if you find a comfortable shoe, there's a chance that that comfort is because it allows you to go through your preferred movement path. I don't know if that's shown anywhere, um, but that was one of those kind of like, I wonder if those things maybe will go hand in hand. And me thinking about comfort from, yes, those the fit of the shoe and this, you know, softness and all that stuff, but also does it feel like it's pushing your foot at all? You know, like does the heel feel like it's, it's driving you one way or another, or does the forefoot feel like it's driving you one way or another? Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if that's, that's been something that's shown or not.
2: Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have tried to do that, like relate the com- the word comfort to uh, a quantifiable measure. And, uh, and the thing is, it's, uh, I, I think we haven't found, uh, that, relationship, just because of uh, some people's different definitions of, of comfort, you know, you might put your foot in, in a pillow, you know, put a, you know, put a hole in a pillow and put your foot in there. That's pretty comfortable. You could probably run in a pillow, <laughs> you know, but it's not going to be supportive at all for you. And you're right. <laughs> you might trip, you know, and get injured. You know, So I, yeah. that's just kind of an extreme <laughs> example of like, you know, totally. it is comfortable at first try on. So someone might say, oh, comfortable, comfortable, but it's not the right fit for you. Um, and so that people's definition of comfort changes. And, uh, and I think that's one reason why we haven't found that correlation between, a, you know, quantifiable biomechanical measure and the perception of comfort.
0: comfort. Makes a lot of sense. I, know, I have a specific question for you too on a case um, for people who have like medial knee OA. Um, one of the ways that people have gone about treatment in the past, um, is through like a lateral wedge in the heel. And you've been talking about the effects of different types of posts on the rotation of the tibia and therefore impacting the knee. Do you have any thoughts on for that specific population who want to try and offload the medial compartment of the knee? Is there, is there a type of shoe out there that can promote help in that direction, offloading the medial knee? Um, what are your thoughts there? I, I would or defer to you guys, honestly. You,
2: you guys are the okay. experts for like this type of, uh, of clinical, you know, uh, diagnosis that I think would probably need some sort of, uh, a personalized orthotic, you know, and so I, I, I'm not a clinician, you know, I, I'm a biomechanist and this seems like a, um, kind of a, yeah, a, a personal, uh, issue i'm sure many people have it but um but yeah. I, i'm not the expert in that field so I
1: to jump on that um what one of the studies that that you were part of is looking at the like because you guys did post laterally and it did seem to shift mechanics there the only challenge is that that is an issue that we run into is that yeah an orthotic sometimes work but oftentimes especially with custom orthotics now i don't i don't prescribe custom orthotics or i don't create them i usually try to keep things as simple as possible but when people are asking about what footwork can we use trying to find stuff that has lateral posts is very rare so there's other mechanisms like lateral flare will work really really well for certain people um some of the guide rails as long as the medial one isn't too intense so the lateral guide rail and some of the brook shoes can be helpful but well, this is just one because people don't normally have they don't Co- companies don't normally post the the lateral aspect; it's usually the medial aspect. So yeah,
2: but you know, it's a little challenging. We know that yeah. we know that a lot of people do have could benefit from a lateral, uh, you know, a post if you want to call it that. And so we are doing studies in in which we try to figure out if different zone how how we could change the different zones under your foot and if that affects you know if that reduces your deviation. Or has any beneficial effect on on uh, reducing injury, and so that that's what we call like the the software that that my my team is uh, interested in in figuring out is like how do you take someone's demographics and uh, and biomechanical state you know and and portfolio let's call it that and figure out what type of uh, midsole would be best for them so it's a, it's the, an optimization research program that we have. Um, that one, one of my direct reports, Chris is, is entirely focused on. And it's developing that software behind our shoes of figuring out what should the midsole look like? So that if you had the ability to make any midsole f- that is personalized to the individual, like we would know. And, and so, uh, I think what the question that you brought up is super important to, to realize that each individual needs a unique um, solution down the road, you know? Um, and, uh, and I think we're getting there. Yeah.
1: That's very cool. That's very cool. Um, on, on that topic you mentioned, so there's a lot of focus on trying to prevent injuries, correct? Looking at how can we make footwear that facilitates the preferred motion pathway, but then also prevents injuries. And that Defining that in the literature has been somewhat challenging in terms of going what what are the we're starting to see a little bit more. I'm curious and we could probably do like thousands of hours on just this topic. But briefly, what what does Brooks and what are what do you look at when it turns to trying to figure out relationships between running injuries and running? I don't think I asked that very well. What do we look
0: at? How how would you how would you go about? identifying this shoe decreases injury like how do you get to that point
2: that's a better that's a better way to say that yeah that that's a really good question um and, and i think there's so much that goes into injury you know uh there's training errors which is probably the most important one you know there's there's sleep you know there's this diet there's uh, there's all sorts of different things that that are factors in uh, determining if someone will get injured or not. And one of those factors is is footwear you know it, it might be a small factor, but it's a factor that that we could control <laughs> at Brooks, you know and by by making good shoes, but by also guiding the people to the right shoes. And so um, I, I think it'll depend on what what someone's, uh, predisposition might be, you know, to certain injuries, uh, before we could guide them to to the right shoe. Um, and so there isn't one solution that works, that works for all. Unfortunately, you know, we, we've made a, a support technology. And as I said, you know, we have our, our support system that accounts for many different features in the shoe to go along with that support system to provide support to as like the best possible solution for someone who is looking for support. But I think in the future, it'll be, it'll be more kind of, it'll account for, it'll be more personalized, I guess, you know, there's going to be more options and it has to stay simple. That's, that's the trick because it gets complicated quickly because there's so many different types of injuries and, and everybody is different, but, but I think we're heading in that direction. I think that's the future of support. Honestly, is is having uh, a more personalized approach, op- optimized approach to supporting the individual based on their needs.
1: So, so, rather than the more traditional method, which you know years ago was everybody needs to run this way, you have to go you know straight down the middle. You need a medial post, and you need this the stiffest shoe because you need to have this rigid. It's going to roll you exactly forward. It's it's more about the it's more about how can we support again talking about the preferred motion pathway how can we support this individual's foot and in biomechanics to move the way that works best for them not their neighbor or their running buddy or their rival how can it how can it best support them however they want to define that
0: and i think the other the other thing just to reiterate what you said coming from the person who is doing the research to design shoes to help people he said that there are a lot of factors that go into injury And I think it's very easy for all of us to want the easy fix. And so for anything, for anything in our life, I know I'm, I'm that way too. If I'm sick, I just want something to make me feel better, you know, whatever it is, but not actually have to have healthy lifestyle. And so I think in the same way with running, Matt, you just got to reiterate the fact that there are so many factors that go into being a healthy runner and and shoes are really great because they are modifiable and something we can control, but it's not the only thing. So if you're getting hurt our our recommendation is always if you're if you're regularly getting hurt especially go talk to a PT physio who can help you identify some of these other factors that you also can control they're just harder to identify sometimes and then also they can help you with the shoe conversation too but it's that's only one piece of the pie when it comes to getting hurt so i always appreciate hearing that from the people who design the shoes too who you you guys make a huge impact and it's amazing and it's also one piece of the one piece of the puzzle. So, is there anything else on your mind that's been interesting?
2: I think that that one thing that's uh, becoming more and more popular is trail running, and, and this is something yes, we should talk about that this. is uh, is a pretty hot topic I think uh, these days, and uh, and and that is uh, I'm curious about your guys' perspective on this too, but. But in trail running, every step is different, right? We've talked a lot about support for uh, for road running. And, uh, you know, most running injuries that relate to road running are chronic injuries due to repetitive strain, right? You take, you know, you're straining your, I don't know, your... Uh, your patella, like, you know, just a little bit every step and you take 10,000 steps, you know, it's going to get fatigued and it, there's micro tears that are going to happen. But then in trail running, every single step is completely different. And so how do you actually support the runner in, in that sense? And so um, we did a study where we we asked people, we wanted to find out what the most common running injury was in, in trail running. And it turns out that it's uh, it's ankle sprains. And, uh, we, we just published that paper actually. And, and, uh, and I that's saw that different. Yeah. It's, oh, you, you already saw it while wow, you're, you're on, you're onto yep. your literature. <laughs> Great. Cause I, <laughs> I am. That's, a
1: savage. She's just that's all I, I live and breathe <laughs> that. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's cool. I've been saying that cause I would think that the unstable terrain, right. With more like in s- with how poor a lot of people's proprioception is. And again, body sense. And there's, I think there's also some previous literature that didn't, wasn't quite as good as what you put out, but had, had like ta- alluded to ankle sprains, maybe more common, but it's nice to have some more solid stuff going, Hey, look.
2: Yeah. So, and good, so, good job. Great job, by the way. Oh, thanks. I, I felt like it wasn't. Yeah. I felt like it wasn't out there. Like it, it, it uh, it's cool to, to find that ankle sprains are more common in trail running, but, but knee injuries are more common in road running. And uh, it's because of the unstable terrain. But we also found in that in that study, I forget if we mentioned it in the um, in the paper, but that people associated con- like confidence in their footwear as being an element of uh, of feeling supportive or supported in their in their shoe. And so so we were like, how could we measure confidence uh, in in someone besides for just kind of. Uh, asking them, you know, did did you feel more confident or not. And so we uh we decided to do that through eye tracking. And the thought was that if someone is looking a little bit farther ahead in the trail, then they're probably more confident going r- running down the trail because they don't have to worry about looking right next to them like more proximal to their feet because if you're if you're running in something that you don't trust at all, you know, a shoe that is really uncomfortable or or whatever you're probably gonna look closer to your feet to make sure you don't step on a rock or a, or a branch or something like that. So we actually found that people who were more uh, confident in their footwear were looking a little bit farther ahead and that gave them a little more buffer time to plan their, their route as they're navigating the trail. So, so now we know that if someone in, in, when we're doing our testing, you know, when we do our testing of trail shoes, if someone says you know they feel more confident in, in one shoe compared to another, we know that it relates probably to, to their gaze patterns and, and where they're looking, which I thought was a super cool, um, thing. And, and then how do you then develop a shoe and you know, make a shoe to, uh, enhance confidence? You know, that's probably going to change for, for every person. But I think there's something with, you know, just the right amount of cushion, not too much cushion because then you're, you know, a soft shoe is inherently unstable, because it's just a big piece of foam under your foot that's wobbly, right? So you have to have those, those support features to to stabilize the foot in a really soft shoe. So anyway, just the right amount of foam. Um, and then probably some sort of podular of design that that promotes kind of proprioception. So you know what's going on in, under your foot. Uh, it's not like, yeah, you, you know, like what the terrain is like a little bit, but you're not running in a vibrant five finger, you know, where you're like, just, you're feeling every single rock under your foot. So it's somewhere in between, you know? So anyway, that's, that's I think something's really fascinating of defining support and trail.
3: Yeah. And even just anecdotally, cause I have some friends that are some real good trail runners and that's one of the things that I've noticed in conversations with them too is just the confidence in their own ability to navigate trails and then their choice of footwear reflecting that. And so some of them may run in something that you would think would be like, oh, well, they're running through some pretty technical stuff. They're going to put on something that has this thick lug, outsole, like very confident, sticky-type shoe, and then they don't choose that for other reasons depending on how the race or the rest of the terrain and stuff goes or sections they're going to navigate elsewhere because they already feel confident going through those types of sections versus some people who don't have that anecdotal confidence in their own ability might choose like, I want this thing to lock me into the ground as much as I possibly can.
2: Yeah. So yeah. And th- there's traction to you. You brought up, you know, the stickiness traction is huge in, in trail running. So of course that's going to be a factor that determines someone's confidence in their shoe. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask if you've, if you've seen, what, what sort of factors within a shoe enhance confidence yet, whether that's, you know, the width of the outsole as well, or the type of upper that's holding their foot. Um, is there anything in that realm that you've, that you guys have identified yet besides, I mean, you talked about the podular outsole and the amount of cushioning. Um, are there any others that have been correlated yet or or not necessarily?
2: Um, I, I think, yeah, the, the width is a good one because, um, uh, at first we, we thought, okay, let's, you know, since ankle sprains are the most common injury in, in trail running, let's make a shoe that has like, um, that, that, that has a, uh, a f- something that sticks out on the lateral side to pr- protect, like mechanically prevent that. Yeah, stop it to stop that right and and so it's kind of like that um like a little flange like something that sticks out so we made a shoe um and then we had people running it people hated it they thought it was like the least supportive option of them all because it was getting caught on branches and stuff and it, it created a lever arm you know that that made that made you uh you know uh twist your ankle even more and so in the other direction and so that was kind of a, a fail. You know, we try to fail as much as possible. By the way, like when we when we <laughs> test our, our our prototypes, because we learn a lot when we do that. And so, so yeah, I think the width, the geometry of that uh, of that midsole is is extremely important. Uh, where you want it to be not not too thin, because too thin is um is is not stable. Um, and but too wide is is unstable also just because it could get caught on stuff, you know, it, it could change the way that you
3: run. I've definitely poked a rock and gone flying off the side of a shoe. Yeah. That happened to me right before Surf City last year. Wow. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That was right behind. before yeah. big race. I, mean,
2: yeah, the, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. The, the upper is extremely important too, by the way. You know, if we're talking about things that are supportive or more optimized confidence in the runner in trail running, the, the upper is like... Yeah, you have to have something that keeps you on the on the base of the shoe and that could support you know lateral shifting and and, and whatnot and that is protective also from branches or rocks so um, yeah lots lots of different factors i
1: i really appreciate by the way um as someone who a lot of my specialty is both spine and geriatric and so older individuals so that's what my PhD dissertation is on right now, is master's runners. But it's it's so fascinating to me that you were you were creative enough to go, let's look at their gaze stability, how far they're looking out in front of them, and correlate that to their confidence. Because in the rehab world, a lot of older individuals have come in that, you know, if they've had something happen, especially fear is one thing, but really bad proprioception in their lower extremity, they, they'll commonly present as, you know, watching their feet as they walk, because as as we, all, as we know that there's three major proprioceptive centers in our body, right? The places we get our awareness from is visual, which is the most most heavily used one. There's our vestibular system, our inner ear, and then there's all the nerves and that go through the ligaments and stuff and some of the soft tissue in our extremities. And it's very common that a lot of older people, as they they can start losing some of that or they'll have things happen, they'll start watching that and you'll, they'll, they won't, will not look out in front of them. And which, what's challenging is obviously the more they do that, it actually from the literature increases their fall risk. I'm very curious to know if in trail runners, that's also the same thing where if you are too concerned about what's happening at your foot and ankle, and you're watching that too much, that, that also increases the risk of ankle sprain because now you're not looking at what's coming or what's ahead of you. I have no idea if there's a relationship there, but that's what that looks like in the geriatric literature yeah. on that topic.
2: Yeah, I would bet there is. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. I'll, I'll have to uh to look for that paper and cite it in, in our next publication.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: No. There's there 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 is there's a a no that's there's a no amount. limitations there's a lot of it so you'll you'll have plenty to follow. That's is very big in the yeah. research world in PT.
3: Yep. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Cool. One last question I have for you. Um, and this is kind of going back to the structure of your lab and and how you interact with development. When, when you go about your research agenda, um, is it something that kind of the Brooks team brings to you? Like, Hey, we want to create a shoe for this, do some research to figure out if this is going to X, Y, or Z, or are you kind of the driver in your lab, um, for what gets developed? Kind of how does that team play work there?
2: It goes both ways, honestly. You know, every six months uh, we, we get together, and uh, you know the the leaders in footwear and, and uh, throughout the whole brand. So uh, cross departmental um, you know efforts come together, and and we um, we all we all figure out okay, what are our strategic priorities for the brand, you know, and what are what are our priorities for footwear, and then uh, we figure out what we need to do to get there. And, uh, everybody is, is able to come up with, um, with ideas. You know, we have a whole run sites team who know the runner best, you know, and they go out and they interview runners and they, uh, they find out, you know, what the trends might be, you know, or what, what, uh, some latent needs might be that could benefit the runner in 10 years, you know, and, uh, and then they, they come to me and, and my colleagues and, you know, we, we figure out, okay, is this something that we want, we want to prioritize? Uh, you know I've come up with with ideas like the the eye tracking one, for example, you know it i I was you know I, I listened to a lot of neuroscience podcasts and I was like, oh, you know the eye, the eyes are the only part of the uh, of our body that we could uh, uh, the only part of the brain that we could see you know are the eyes. so why don't we if we want to know what's going on with confidence and what people perceive let's let's measure the eyes you know so that's one that I brought up and i um I suggested it as something we could do and And they were on board, you know, and I brought up other ideas where they were like, "Ah, maybe not, you know, and it's okay. So every six (laughs) months we we, we get together and uh, and we we figure out what we want to prioritize. And and the ideas come from everywhere. The whole brand, you know, interns could come up with ideas uh, that end up in in one of our shoes.
0: That's cool. And do a lot of, does any of your research also have, we talked, we've talked a lot about support and I think that's one of the things we get most excited about as physical therapists and just keeping people healthy. Does, does your lab also work with running economy and um, performance as well? Oh yeah.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, one thing that's special about Brooks is that we, we cater to all runners. You know, we're not focused on just the elite. Um, And so all runners, we, we we focus on recreational runners. You know, people who have um, who who have certain special needs in terms of support. You know, we have solution shoes. You know, we have and and we also have great uh, performance shoes for the elite. And we have a, a our Brooks Beasts and uh, and Hansons, who are our elite teams. Um, and so so yeah, we we have studies in which uh, we're developing like the Hyperion Elite, uh, where we we measure someone's vo2 you know and we have protocols uh to to tell you know which shoe reduced your your run at your energy cost the, the most and and so we use all the tools we we have in our lab you know it's um so yeah definitely we we do that stuff and we also develop spikes you know for our, our track athletes and so we have different methods to assess them uh, out you know in the in the real world you know and so we're also looking to uh, to test our our products more and more out in the real world, like out in the wild. And um, and so we're using things like like the watch, like I was mentioning earlier, you know, which is a wearable that over 90% of runners actually wear. So why not start there and gather uh, sample by sample data from, from people and how they run. Um, and so, so yeah, uh, I kind of expanded on your question. You were asking just about, you know, the metabolic card and, and VO2, but yeah, we. We do that and, and more. That's awesome.
0: Cool. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you, you got to touch on a lot of our favorite topics, and I know that we all got to learn a lot from your experience both in kind of your professional journey, which I think has a lot of lessons to take from it, and then obviously what you all are doing with with Brooks and kind of the impact that you get to have on the the shoes that people are putting on their feet. So we we thank you a ton for for joining us today, and we look forward to being with touch with you in the future as as you keep putting out great stuff both publicly for us to see and also. We, get, we might not get to see all the research, but we get to see the product in the shoes. So thanks again for joining us. This has been awesome. I will make a shout out to our website quick, doctorsrunning.com. We have a tab called that just says research at the top. And we try to link a, a lot of the studies that we reference in our reviews and the ways that we talk about footwear. And so, Matt, at the end, we're going to bug you for a couple of maybe some hallmark studies that that you think are super helpful for people to be reading and clinicians, too, to be reading. And we'll add some of those to our research tab. But you can go to drderunny.com and click the research tab. And we have tons of research listed there. And we try to categorize it for people. So feel free to check that out. Um in, in other news, you can always be following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and all the other things that our media manager, Bach, does, like LinkedIn and whatever else he does at Pinterest. I think he said we have like 20 Pinterest followers, guys. Let's go. Uh, so Shout out to his
1: work on LinkedIn, by the way. We have like the entire professional running community, so it's not like footwork community following us apparently, so that's really cool.
0: Yeah, that's funny. but awesome. And again, we we're excited to hear what other people have to say about how they find out what shoe is going to work for them. We'd love to hear your feedback, especially in light of what Matt brought for us. So Matt, again, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I mean, uh, yeah, you guys, you guys are great. You, you really know what you're doing. And uh, it's just uh, an honor
0: to, to be a guest on your podcast. Appreciate that. All right, everybody have a great day or night or morning or whenever you're listening.